This is iUniverse Radio, brought to you by iUniverse, the leading book marketing, editorial services, and supported self-publishing company. iUniverse Radio is your opportunity to hear firsthand from authors about their new books. It's an in-depth discussion about the author's passion about the development of his or her story in their own words. It's an inside look into the characters and the plot and how the story all came together. Here is iUniverse Radio with host Steve Jorgensen. Greetings for iUniverse. This is J. Douglas Barker. The title of the book is One Month, Week, Day, Hour, Minute, Second. That pretty well covers it, other than split seconds, I guess. And our author who joins me from Canada is Rebecca Marie. Welcome, Rebecca, to the program. Hi, Jay. How are you today? Just fine. This is a great day to be outdoors. I understand where you're located now, 20 months from now, or 15, or even three months from now. That may change. Uh, tell me about your book. This is a unique title, talking about one month, week, day, hour, minute, second. What is the significance of that, Rebecca? Well, the significance really is, is the book is my memoir of surviving and living in domestic violence. And the reason I came up with the title is because that's literally what it's like. When you first start off, it's kind of like, you know what, I survived one month with this person. Then it becomes your week, your day, your hour, your minute, and then your second. And next thing you know, you just find yourself in full survival mode, just trying to get through one second to the next. You have written 132 pages, not a long read, but I'm sure... Uh, that the story deals with some difficult issues. When did this begin? Uh, when did your marriage begin going down the wrong track or your relationship? Well, you know what? There were the warning signs right from the beginning when I first met him. And unfortunately, I looked the other way. It's like I started questioning my, my own judgment. So really, I, I've got to say within a week of meeting this man, things started going awry. And were you were you a, a, a young person at the time of this meeting, or were you a little more mature? You know what? I was in my early 30s, mature woman, very successful, intelligent, um, independent, thought that I would certainly never fall prey to anything like that. So that's what's so important about this book, too, is it doesn't matter who you are. It can happen to anybody. You also outline in here not only physical abuse, but also sexual abuse. Uh, did this occur with this individual, or was this something else that had uh, impacted your life in a negative way? Well, you know what? Actually, in my book, what I do is I talk about the patterns that started as a small child. So as a small child, I was sexual. So there was incest in the family. And then it did lead into, as a teenager, right, looking for love in all the wrong places. Right which did, there are some incidents in there where I talk about attempted rape on myself um, by other individuals, some of them family, some of them teachers, some of them just strangers, really. And then it did lead into, I mean, patterns start early. So the sexual abuse that I do focus a lot on, though, in the book, is within the domestic violent relationship. And the reason being is there's not as much about that. So there's not a lot of resources. Nobody wants to talk about it. And it was really difficult to write about. And with that, I was very open 
very specific, very graphic in lots of cases, because you know what? We need to talk about it. It needs to be discussed for sure. You have uh, completed, I guess, uh, about 25 chapters, and you, although this is not a long read, you have included some very uh, poignant titles. One that struck me was Ragdoll. What did that refer to? You know what, Ragdoll, the best way to describe it is there was an incident where I was beaten. I was thrown around basically the whole place, right from the kitchen to the living room, moved to the family room. And the only way I could describe it afterwards was it was like being a rag doll. And for anybody that's ever had, you know, a doll where you just carry it around as a small child and you toss it and it's just, it goes anywhere you want it to. That's what it felt like. That was the best way to describe. I was being tossed around like a rag doll. I had no control over my body anymore. It was being thrown where he wanted me to go. Hmm. Rebecca, there must have been a moment that a light bulb went off in your head and you said, no more, I'm moving on with my life. How did that happen? How did you get out of that relationship? Well, you know what? It wasn't from my first attempt, and I'm not alone in that. And That's why this book is so important, too, is because you go back, and most women do. They go back to the abusive relationship because your self-esteem, your whole being has changed. So finally what happened was I just, life was at the point where if I continue, I will die here. I'm willing to take the risk of leaving and dying. So one way or another, I had to get out. And in the book, what I discuss about is for about a month, month and a half, I had gone and there was an addiction issue as well. So I was, I I was also taken by addiction, and I talk about that in there. And what I did is I managed to get myself off the addiction, which started giving me some strength. And what I did say was, every night before I went to bed, I said, God, I don't know when, I don't know how, but please give me a sign. And I promise you, I will listen to you this time. And if I don't listen, you can forget all about me. Hmm. And I was given that signal really strong when I had gone away for one weekend. Definitely not with the intention of leaving. So then I realized, oh my goodness, this is my sign. And I have told God, and I'm not an overly religious person, I'm a spiritual person. However, I realized at that moment you have to do something. And I did manage to tell him that I was leaving, I was over the phone at that point. And then what I did is I called one of the women's shelters, one of their helplines, and I told them what just happened. And the only reason I did end up staying away that time was I actually, for the first time, did listen to the professionals. I listened to those counselors. I took all the help. So really what I did is I put my whole future into their hands. And I said to them, you tell me what to do, and I will do it. Even if I don't agree, and I may argue it, but I will do it. Mm. And I did. And we cannot do this alone. And that's another important part of the book, is there are resources. And no matter how many times you tap in, you may go more than once. And hopefully by going again and again, one day you see that, you know what, these are the professionals. They are there to help you. 
they do care and follow their guidance. Share a little bit about Chapter 15. I know that was a an important event that you discussed in Chapter 15. Is that, would you uh, say in your estimation, the most uh, striking scene that you have outlined in your book? So when we say Chapter 15, I apologize, don't have the book in front of me. Uh-huh. So you're going to have to tell me the title, and then it's going to spark what I need to talk well, about. Well, it talks about rape in marriage, and, and you, uh, in quotations, talk about a conversation. I asked her where she went and when she left the suite and so on. I just, yes. uh, What was that story about? You know what that story was about? And I didn't realize the impact of it, actually, until I was writing about it, is... I was at a special event. There were a number of my colleagues there. Now, they weren't in the same room as me, but they were down the hall. And what happened was there was an extremely violent situation that had taken place. And I know people heard it. And I know they heard it because months later, people came to me from that same group and said, you know, that night in the hotel, we never blamed you. We're so sorry. Mm. Don't be embarrassed. And wow, how can 30 people, at least 30 people, that are right there, that know something's going on, not pick up a phone, not call security, not call the police, nothing. I am not asking anybody to put themselves in danger. I don't want anybody to step in on, on a violent situation. What I'm saying is make the phone call. Let the authorities decide. Let the police or that hotel security decide what the situation is. Maybe that'll be the difference between that woman actually living or dying. And this happens This happens not just in marriage and, and in violence, as you discussed, but uh, there are many instances where uh, on the street corner or on a street, someone gets attacked and people just sort of feel like they want to look the other way. Absolutely, and it's really interesting because when I went through the women's shelter, they talk about a safety plan. And in that safety plan, they, you know, one of the things they tell you is if you are out in public and you need help, do not yell help. Yell fire. Mm-hmm. Because everybody will come running if there's a fire. If you yell help, people will look the other way. I want society to stop looking the other way. Victims can't do this alone. We all need to stand up. Even in the community I live in right now, you know, on the news two days ago, another woman stabbed to death. Wow. Like, do we wait until people are taken out, you know, in the body bag? Sorry to be so graphic, but it's true. What if you made that phone call and that woman got to live? Now, if that woman goes back after you made that phone call, that was her choice. Never give up. Never look the other way. We had a similar instance in a uh, community that we lived in. My children played with a neighbor, neighbor's children, and we found out years later that the gentleman, gentleman, the man who was in that household was also molesting children, and we didn't know it until years later. And, of course, at that point, you, you wonder, should I make a statement, should I come forward, should I say anything, and you just don't know what to do when it's 10 or 15 years later, and yet the scars are still there on some of those children, unfortunately. 
as you completed your book, what was the message that you you wanted to make sure got across in completing it? There are really two messages. Is there's always hope. You cannot do it alone. And if you know of somebody, I think one of the most powerful words is you may be aware of what's going on and you may have tried to help them. And make sure you make the statement that no matter whether you decide to go back to him or you leave, I will never judge you. I will always be your friend. Because the abuser wants you to isolate. The abuser wants you to feel ashamed. So by giving somebody the power of knowing no matter what decision they make, you will always be there. So don't judge others because you don't know. The other thing is, and again, back to that chapter 15, this is reality. Society needs to step up, whether it's child abuse, whether it's rape, whether it's domestic violence. We need to stand up together. We all need to become advocates. If you see somebody's in distress or you think somebody is, make the phone call. If you're wrong, that's okay. No harm done. If you're right, you may have just saved a life. Now, that's a pretty good thing to be able to walk around with, the feeling that I made a difference. Society needs to make a difference. It's the silence that makes it grow. And if somebody's telling you something, believe them. Mm. Important, important advice. I uh, can look back on my career and my interaction with individuals and know there are times I wish I had had the answer. And because I didn't, I didn't react as I should have. So thank you for sharing that. What were the challenges in getting this completed? Wow. I think the biggest challenge was I had it all in my head. And getting it on paper was one thing. The biggest challenge was reliving all the emotion. So as you put every situation, so it was like seeing it, visualizing what happened with each event and what it looked like and seeing it all over again and really reliving a lot of the emotion. And I did do a lot of counseling around it and I did suffer from post-traumatic stress around it and realizing, wow, how painful this still is, how many wounds there still are. Now, it gave me another opportunity, though, for therapy, my own therapy. By writing it, it gave me that. So the biggest challenge was having to relive it all over again and feel those emotions and feel the pain. And coming to the realization as well that, you know, things that I thought were the most hurtful, sometimes I was surprised. So to find out one of my biggest chapters really was that society looked the other way, that my colleagues looked the other way. Hmm. And I was surprised that that became... I, I actually became quite angry after that chapter. I was quite upset with society and how have we come here and how can this be? And So the biggest challenge was definitely reliving it, reliving it. And I'm grateful. I'm grateful I got to relive it because it is another form of therapy. And I'm grateful the book is out there because I am a firm believer that we all go through something. None of us can say we are crisis-free in our life. I'm a big believer, though, that we learn, we grow, 
And by sharing this, and if I can save anyone, one woman, one child, millions, if I can change society's viewpoint, it was all worth it. Rebecca, thank you for joining me today from Calgary, Alberta. The title of the book, again, is One Month, Week, Day, Hour, Minute, Second. Our author, Rebecca Marie. Rebecca, where do we get copies of your book? Well, there's a number of places you can go. One of the best things to do is to go to my website, and that'll give you a number of options. And that is RebeccaMarieHopes.org. And Rebecca is R-E-B-E-C-C-A. And the other place you can get it is Barnes & Noble's. You can get it in Canada at Chapters or Indigo. And, of course, on Amazon, whether it be Amazon.com or Amazon.ca. Rebecca, since this book has come out, have you had any opportunities to share your story with an audience? You know what? I'm working on that, and I do do public speaking, and what I'm looking for is any organization, groups that would like me to speak to this, whether or not they deal with um, child abuse, rape, or domestic violence. So any organizations I am currently working on getting into some of the communities here, through some of the shelters, but any organization that would like me to speak to their people, whether or not they are working with people that have been affected by this, or as an education. So whether or not you're a educational institution, being a university, college, anything like that, or a group that does help others. I'm there for you. Just go to the website, get in contact with you, correct? Absolutely. Go on there, send me your information. I'll be more than happy to give you a call and see what I can do to help you make a difference. Thank you, Rebecca. And uh, listeners, you can do a search under her name, the author's name, Rebecca Marie, and also locate the book worldwide. So, Rebecca, thank you for joining me today and sharing this important story and this important bit of information that we need to incorporate into our thinking when we encounter difficult situations. Thank you again. Thank you, Jay. For iUniverse, this is Jay Douglas Barker. You're listening to iUniverse Radio. We'll be back right after these messages. Congratulations on being the proud owner of an adorable, soft, cuddly, sweet-smelling, smiling, cooing, hungry, tired, gassy, screaming little bundle of joy. So now what? Where's the owner's manual for this thing? Where are my instructions? Right here. It's Baby and Toddler Instructions with Blythe Lipman on toginet.com. Infant care specialist Blythe Lippman has worked with babies for over 20 years and works extensively with new parents providing workshops, in-home visits, tips, and daily phone calls to ease those frazzled nerves. With baby and toddler instructions, you can get the advice you need on how to survive and enjoy your baby's first year. For more information on Blythe and how she can help you, go to babyinstructions.com. From 32 ways to stop a baby from crying to 14 ways to get a baby to eat and so much more. It's Baby and Toddler Instructions with Blythe Lippman on toginet.com. Welcome back to iUniverse Radio with host Steve Jorgensen. Greetings for iUniverse. This is Jay Douglas Barker. Today, I get to visit with Emma Gomez. 
who has written a book titled Emma Gomez, A Courageous Woman Displays True Grit. I don't know if that has to do with a Western uh, a Western uh, uh, movie or what it is, but on the phone from New York City is Emma Gomez. Welcome to the program. Okay. Yes, that's pretty interesting what you just said. What, why did you use the term a true grit in your in your title. That is a, a story by itself. And quickly I will tell you how did I come to that title, which is sometimes unheard of the way I put it. Uh, while in college, one of my many experiences at the beginning, it was this professor, Dr. Kelberg. So he took a like on me and, and he used to tell me many times, Emma, you're a courageous woman. And that carried on for over 40 years, believe it or not. Really? He just died last year. And one of the last things he told me in an email was that I am a courageous woman. So I got that part of the book. So when I was working with the federal government, uh, there was this man in charge of a business service center who also liked me a lot. And he followed sort of my whole story from day one when I went to college, when I graduated. Then he wrote a, a book, I mean a an article in the GSA Review, GSA General Services Administration, the agency that I worked for, that says uh, Emma Gomez, you know, he didn't use the word courageous. He says, displays true grit. She earns her college degree. So I put courageous from Dr. Culver, and for this man, the rest of the, the grit. Uh, well, we'll, and it came out pretty good. We'll, we'll forgive you for being a little egotistical. I think that was not the intent, and it doesn't come across that way. So I think that works well in your title. You mentioned in your book that you were born in Puerto Rico, in uh, the yes. mountains of, is it Yabuqua? Yes. Tell us about your early beginnings. And I will mention to our listeners that Emma is also a courageous fighter of, uh, of Parkinson's and doing well today. So thank you again for joining and also, me. the fact that I am 80 years old. 80? You sound like you're, 80, you, don't sound a, you don't sound a day older than 79. I... <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> yeah, but but it is true. It is true. Uh, I'm all that, and I'm amazed myself. I didn't think of this. I should have thought about this 30, 40 years ago. I'd have done probably a better job, but never too late when you want to do it. Tell tell us how you ended up in Brooklyn and uh, uh, Brooklyn, New York, and and uh, how your early beginnings impacted your story. Yes, well, my early beginning, that's my favorite theme for the book and from my everyday talk. Everywhere I go, I, I preach uh, childhood. You know, although you, you, uh, you might not be familiar with the details of my parents. My mother never went to school. She didn't know how to write her name. But she was some kind of disciplinarian his her own way. And she instilled in me and the other, my sisters and brothers, I have another, I have seven sisters and two brothers. We all grew up with, under the same principles. My mother will not let us do certain things because they were not good for us. So he taught us well in, in our childhood. My father also helped, but my mother was in charge of the children most of the time. And during our childhood, she really put us on the right road, the correct road, for a future that offering something. 
you know, which is most of the most of the time. Today that's overlooked or on the on the stand and whatever. And but that's what it was. My principles and my values I learned from my mother, my parents. Well, I was a very, very young child. Uh, the book I started probably is when I was about five years old. And it has continued the way until now. That's why I feel that the childhood is, one of, if not the most, one of the most important stages of our development from child to adulthood. Uh, what inspired you to attend university? What was that? Uh, what inspired you to attend college, university? Oh, yeah, well, I, I guess I was living in a cloud for a while because it is, we, we, I cannot say my family was poor because you cannot have what is not available to you. Like, we didn't have electric light because it, the services had not reached yet the rural communities, at least my one in Jebukoa. So I was stuck in the mountains, uh, no, nowhere to go, until I was of age to live on my own. So I followed my older uh, siblings that once they are 18 or finish high school or the eighth grade, which a few of them only got to the eighth grade, they left home in search for jobs or better being a better life for themselves. So that was one of the things that inspired me to leave Puerto Rico. Not that I knew what I was doing exactly, but my brother helped me and brought me here. I, will, I, I never understood why I didn't think of going to further my education because I was a, an A student all through my school life. I was an A student, and I got so spoiled that if I got a B instead of an A, I felt bad. And I concentrated in my uh, school, in my bettering my education, for hoping for a better life in the future. So at 19 years old, I decided to follow my brothers and two other sisters that were here in New York, and I left Puerto Rico. And I apparently I I. I had such an uh, easy time because my brother and my sisters that were here were good people like me. And they told me, you know, more, more or less what I should, what I shouldn't do, and I listened to advice. Mm. So by listening to people's advice, I went on, I got a job, I got married, so many things happened. But in 15 minutes we cannot cover everything, but we'll cover the why I'm here today. So. Immediately, I found a job uh, in a factory, which those days, I mean, the early 50s and, and even 60s, uh, the manufacturing uh, factories were all over the place, and it was easy to find a job. And I found a job, and I stayed on that job, and I kept listening to advice to people. So I was lucky enough to work with a woman who was an older person already. I don't know how old she was, but she must have been over, way over 60. And she uh, sort of adopted me as her daughter. Her name was Kitty, Kitty O'Neill. She's dead many years ago. And I listened to her fully. And she told me, Emma, you're smart, besides being good looking, a smart woman. What are you doing here in a factory? I didn't know what she was talking about because I didn't know any better. 
she says, you know, you deserve much, much better. But why do I deserve much better? She says, because you listen and you are a good person. And you are not afraid to work and not afraid to listen to me. Because everybody used to call her an old maid and nobody liked her. Some of them hated her. Mm. And I liked her. So she guided me. She says, go to a real estate and do this and do that. She gave me very good advice. Instead of having an apartment, why don't you buy your own house? I was only 20, 20, 20, not even 21. I was 20. You know, I was too young, but I, I was in a new environment in a totally unknown to me. But I, by following advice of the people that you at least thought or believe that they were trying to help you, and asking questions. I'm never afraid of asking questions. And I found out that by asking questions and listening to advice, you can get places. So I said, hey, that's what I want. It doesn't sound too bad. And one of the chapters, one of the chapters that you, you have included in your book talks about a brownstone house. Yes. Now, a brownstone <laughs> house in New York City is a big deal. Did you purchase oh. a brownstone? Yes, I did in 1959. I remember exactly it was uh, November 19th, uh, ni- yeah, 1959. Wow. I think I was 20, 23 years old, or yeah, uh, 23 years old. I didn't know what a brownstone house was. I never heard of brownstone. I wanted to know what it was. And Kitty mentioned to me, the lady that I said that was helping me, she told me, buy a house, don't think about buying an apartment. You can do this, you can do that, you are beautiful, you are you're smart, you are young, you don't need anything else. Well, I need the money. But somehow, uh, I managed. Along with my husband, this time I, had, I got married in 1955. Mm. So I was married already for about four years when we got the brownstone. My husband wasn't amb- as ambitious as I was. Uh, and, you know, he, he came from a different environment. I came from the mountains. The mountains, you have to work, you have to make your hands dirty. If you don't, then you're in bad shape. In the city, you don't, you don't get really your hands dirty. Right. But anyway. What is, the, uh, what is the underlying message that actually comes through in your book, besides telling your personal story? I mean, this is a biograph, biographical sketch of your life. Yes. There must be an underlying message or theme that really is going to uh, attach to the reader, is going to get their attention. What would that be? Yeah, well... Like I said, believing in yourself. A lot of people say, oh, I cannot do that. They don't even try. And they are saying, I'm believing that they cannot get there or that they cannot do things. I'm not that way. You tell me, you know, Emma, you should try this. I say, you know, that's, that sounds good. So I try. If it doesn't work for me, I just get on and continue my life, you, you know. You've included a, a chapter that deals with a trip to China. What was the purpose of your going to China, and why is that an important milestone in your book? Yes. You know... Uh, being from a country like Puerto Rico, the mountains, and going to China is really a contrast. I mean, you cannot compare. At that point, that was my trip was in 1980, I believe. Or you know, I might not be that accurate to the point, but more or less, it was 70, 79 or, or 80 years old. I was. I mean, the year. So anyway, I was in school, and again, I go back to Dr. Kelber, my my counselor in a way when I was in my first years of college and for some reason somebody came to the classroom one day uh, recruiting women Spanish or uh, minority women for a trip to China 
And at that time, you know, China and the U.S. were not that friendly because, right. of course, a communist country that they are. And I said yes. I didn't even know where, why I had been contacted or for who. I have no details of the trip. I, I signed that I wouldn't go. So then we, the, the person in charge of the trip, explained to us certain things, and we did well. So Dr. Calvert told me, that is a fantastic idea. You go, and then he gave me, he was my professor at that time. He says, so we're going to use your trip in learning experience. I said, fine. So he gave me an assignment, you know, what to do. But the main uh, thing was to bring back a report of women in the labor movement and in the labor market in China as compared to the ones here. So I said, that's terrific. And he had, he, he had assigned me other things about China, the refugee camps, and I can hardly remember them because, you know, it's been over 40 years ago. Right. Now, as, as yeah. a discoverer and as a learner, constant learner, how would you introduce your book to someone and get them interested in getting their own personal copy? Yeah, well, it is not. It is a fact that my book, and I try my best, and might not be perfect, might not be accurately at times because of my age and my disease and the time in between. But it it gets the true true story. Whatever I say, whichever way I say it or wrote it, is my own, and. And in this book, although there are many biographies by many people, famous and not famous, but mine, I believe, it is different because first, as you asked several times, what is Yabucoa Mountains, Puerto Rico, and person with no shoes for the first few grades in school end up in China? So all that. So this is my opportunity to make this the story or the, of my life. So I did what Dr. Culver asked me to do, did exactly what he wanted, and I wrote some report, and it is a fantastic story, an important story to me, because not only I took part of uh, learning of a society that is one of the most interesting uh, societies in the world, to my opinion, China. And this, this article that I wrote was in form of a book. The way I presented it, my, my professor was really, really shocked. He said, wow, you did it. such a terrific, it's a job of art. A work of art, absolutely. Now, listeners, if yes. you want to join Emma on her adventures so far, the title of the book is Emma Gomez, A Courageous Woman Displays True Grit. And our author, Emma Gomez. Emma, where can my listeners get copies of your book? Well, in, in Barnes & Noble. And there are Amazon. There are other stores, in the small stores. They might have it. But Barnes & Noble has it. And Amazon, that most people are familiar with those. Yes. Entities. And they also can so, do a, they can do a search under your name also and find the book, Emma uh, Gomez, yes, E-M-M-A-G-O-M-E-Z. In the web, in the search web, you can you just have to put Emma Gomez, the whole title of the book, Displays True Greed, 
and there you are. You you see you see the information how to get it in what other places you can get it. It's easy. Fabulous. Just put my name, the title of the book, complete in the search the web, and you got it. Or the Barnes and Noble. Barnes and Noble and Amazon, all of those uh, major carriers will have it. And if you uh, want to go to your local bookstore and request it, they can order a copy as well from iUniverse. Emma, thank you for joining me today and sharing your story. This is inspirational and uh, also a fun read because of all of the different twists and turns that your life has taken. And it's not just... One more point uh, uh, about the... For the credit, for, for uh, the trip for China, I got nine college credits. That is a whole uh, semester part-time student. That is a whole, yes, it is. Well, fabulous. Yes. Thank you for sharing your story. For iUniverse, this is Jay Douglas Barker. You're listening to iUniverse Radio. We'll be back right after these messages. Join us for Self-Aid Success Stories with Helen Wu, Wednesday nights at 10, 9 central on toginet.com. Helen Wu was born and raised in San Francisco's Chinatown, and after a very difficult upbringing, fighting depression, abuse, and addictions, she finally finds herself genuinely happy inside and out. Helen believes in taking our positive thinking and doing something positive to achieve a positive outcome. She's here to make a positive difference in your life, to be your game changer, your aha moment mentor. She's ready to help both men and women get into a better place. Helen Wu is also the author of Self-Aid Success Stories, 25 Success Stories from Successful Entrepreneurs. Inspired by Ellen DeGeneres, Helen wants the world to know that just because we find ourselves in a difficult situation doesn't mean we have to stay there. We can aid ourselves to a better life. So join us for Self-Aid Success Stories with Helen Wu. Wednesday nights at 10, 9 central on toginet.com. Welcome back to iUniverse Radio with host Steve Jorgensen. Greetings for iUniverse. This is J. Douglas Barker. The book is titled The Next Money Crash and How to Avoid It. And our author, who is one of the contributors to this wonderful undertaking of 332 pages, Uli Korch, joins me from Pennsylvania. Welcome to the program. Hello, Jay. This is a fascinating concept, this book, and something that I guess everyone in the United States, perhaps the world, is concerned about, and that's the stability of our finances. Why did you gentlemen get together, I guess it's all gentlemen, and uh, decide to compose this book, and what is the theory behind it? There are a lot of concerns as to where we're at uh, since the crash initiated in 2007, but that, you know, really what we call the Great Recession, which began formally in 2008. Um, with all of the complexity that we have uh, imposed on the system since then, and it's phenomenal, uh, the laws that have been passed by Congress, and I'm talking about the U.S., the same actually applies to the whole world, but let's yes. just keep it to the U.S. Uh, the laws that have been passed are so complex that the regulations that are being written by the regulatory board bodies will not come into place for another several more years, a minimum of two years. That's how complex it is. Wow. And so uh, the openness that there is to illegality, uh, to uh, wrong
wrong kinds of profit motive, motivation to a massive uh, lawyering. Nothing wrong with lawyers. I have some of my best friends are lawyers. But uh, the complexity of the system is, is unbelievable. The question is, has that actually led to greater stability? When we look at the past on other systems, whether it's biological, financial, uh, earthquakes, all sorts of other you know, geo, uh, geological systems, when we get to a knife edge of complexity, which I believe we are very close to, it can take very little to put us back over, over the edge. So the question is, has the increasing degree of complexity actually helped us? And what this book looks at is not, oh my goodness, there are these awful bankers that did these terrible things. Well, perhaps a few of them did, but most of them are wonderful people. Oh my goodness, the Fed doesn't know what they're doing. Uh, oh my goodness, the, you know, whatever. All these, what I would call symptoms. It's like when you have cancer uh, and you say, well, I, I can't breathe. Well, why can't you breathe? Um, and so this book looks at what are the fundamental issues as to how our money system actually works. It sounds really complex. I hate to say it's actually the, the, the bottom line is really very simple. And the bottom line is that 100% of our money is currently created by debt. Very few people are aware of that. I would say less than 1% of the United States understands that. Yes. So when you take a bank loan out for, let's say you want to go borrow a car, you want to borrow $30,000 to uh, to buy a car, and the bank looks at you and says, hey, Jay, you know, you're a good guy. You're going to be able to pay the money back. And they write a loan contract for you. That is an asset to the bank. Where did that $30,000 come from that they then deposit it in your account? Basically, everybody thinks some previous saver put the money into the bank, and what, what they do, the intermediate, that's the big $63 word, they move the money from the saver who came first, and now moved it into your account, and Jay, you can go and buy a car. I hate to tell you, that's not how it works. What mm. it wor the way it works is the private bank creates the money out of nothing, out of absolutely nothing. And what's even crazier is when you pay that money back, you're actually destroying the money. Really? I know that bends most people's heads, and they go, you're not really serious. Let me walk you through the circle to, let's assume that I'm wrong. So I was just talking to a banker, and he says, I'm sorry, you're crazy. I say, okay, so you want to buy a Chevy, and the Chevy costs $30,000. That's what I'll borrow the $30,000 from. And where did the bank get the $30,000? Well, from Chevy. They deposited. Where did Chevy get the $30,000 from? From you. You're buying the car. It's one big circle. Big circle. You see, the money is created through the creation of debt. And that, by that one thought, if we can get that out and get understanding in the public, that creates the repercussions of that system is absolutely everywhere. So we are overloaded by debt, and you know how to solve the problem? We create more debt. It's kind of like an alcoholic. So he has a hangover the next morning, and you go to the alcoholic and say, Dear Mr. Alcoholic, you got a terrible headache. Oh, yeah, it's terrible. Yeah, don't, just turn the lights down. You know, I have a real problem. Well, tell you what, here's another, here's another bottle of scotch or whiskey or whatever it is, and, and this, this will solve your problem. That's how we are solving the problem. Feeding we are trying addiction. to create more debt yep. to solve the problem of too much debt. And we're feeding the addiction. And, and one of those... I guess uh, suppliers of addictive uh, drugs is the Federal Reserve, is it not? Don't they print stuff that really has no financial stability behind it? 
they do, but they print reserves. And none of that money actually goes out on the street. Okay. And again, this is not easily understood. Um, so what the, what the Fed does, they operate in the second, what we call a secondary financial market. They purchase government treasuries. Okay, a, a few other papers too. Let's not get technical. Um, so a, a bank buys a $1,000 bond from the U.S. Treasury that's issued and immediately, seconds later, turns around and sells it to the Fed. What happened with that money? Well, first of all, the money is created out of nothing, so you're absolutely correct. But the money doesn't go to the bank to be lent. The money goes into the reserves. Okay, And until the bank can find a, an appropriate le- a borrower, it doesn't lend that money out. Let me, let me give you some hard numbers. Over the last five years, the Federal Reserve has created over $3 trillion in reserves. Here in the United States, a reserve, by the way, for a bank is, is a combination of money in the vault plus deposits at the Federal Reserve Bank. Okay, And the reserves here in the U.S. are about 10%. So in other words, a bank has to have 10% in reserves in order to be issue, in order to issue a loan. So therefore, the $3 trillion that we have created out of that the Fed has created out of nothing over the last five years equals potentially thirty trillion dollars worth of money on the street. You know what? There isn't any money on the street. It's not working. The whole in in economics we call it pushing on a string. You can pull on a string, mm-hmm. but you can't on a string. It doesn't work. What is the solution that you and your contributors have uh, have at least espoused in this book, The Next Money Crash? What we're suggesting is to change, completely get rid of the fractional reserve banking system, which, which that's, that's how we are creating our money right now. And we change banks so they have two, we call them windows, that, that the World Bank, that's the word it uses. Uh, so one window or one section of the bank is a depository and payment system. So for instance, um, when you deposit $100 in the, in the bank today, I don't know if you've ever read your bank contract, virtually nobody has. No. That is not your money anymore. You, you, I know you call it my account. Correct. It, it is your account, but it's not your money. What the, what you, well, the moment you deposit the money in the bank, you have converted that money into an IOU. The bank now says, I owe you that money, and when you ask for it, I will pay you. Well, that works really great, as long as not too many people want their money at the same time when we get a bank run. Mm. Go back to the solution to the system. So we have two windows. One is the depository and payment system. When you, in this system, we would call a trust banking system, when you deposit $100, it remains your $100. The bank can do nothing with it. So if the bank were to go bankrupt, all your money would still be there. Right now, when the bank goes bankrupt, guess what? Your money isn't there anymore. It's gone. Okay, that's... That's the one side. Now, what about the investment? The second window is the investment side, which, so if you want to get a mortgage, you want to get a car loan, whatever, where does that money come from? Well, when you deposit your $100 in the, in the depository wing, you don't get any, you don't, there's no interest, you don't get anything from that. As a matter of fact, you're going to pay a little bit in fees. So you decide, well, no, no, I want to make a bit of a profit. So you move $50, for instance, across into the investment side, and, and what, what the bank does is creates a whole bunch of mutual funds, and you choose which mutual fund you would like to put your money into. Here in the United States, we have about 15,000 mutual funds. Guess what? They didn't go bankrupt during the Great Recession, but the banks did. Because the, the mutual funds are structured correctly. So the banks can still make good profit off this. 
So that's the recommendation. That is the recommendation. You realize what we've done, we've destroyed the way of making money. So in order to create price stability, to continue to have price stability, we have to have a mechanism for creating new money, and that money would be backed by the, the increase in GDP. Okay? And that would be run by the Federal Reserve Bank. Let's call it a monetary commission. And every quarter, whatever, I, that, that's a detail, doesn't matter. Uh, they decide how much new stuff we have made. I, I, I'm, you know, I jokingly, I call it the, the toaster currency. Instead of the gold-backed currency, it's the toaster-backed currency. Right. Every time a new toaster is made, we create somewhere between 50 cents to a dollar worth of value. That value is then created and paid to the government, federal and state governments, in such a way that everybody benefits. Right now, from the actions that we're taking, only the super wealthy, they benefit like crazy. The rest of us don't. With this new system, anybody who lives in this country ends up benefiting. This is a complex subject, and you have uh, tackled it along with some other uh, well-known contributors. Tell a little of their background and why their contribution is important. Let me, let me go through the list of people who are part of this. So Bill Dunkelberg is the chief economist of the NFIB, the, the, well, certainly is the largest U.S., I believe it's the largest business federation in the world. Larry Kotlikoff is the former senior economist of the President's Council of Economic Advisors. I'm just going down the list here. Michael Kumoff is with the research department of the International Monetary Fund. William Poole is the former president of the St. Louis Federal Reserve Bank. Jeffrey Sachs was twice listed by Time Magazine as one of the 100 most influential people in the world. David Kotok runs a multi-billion dollar investment fund and regularly provides information to other central banks. And Lord Adair Turner from England is the, or was at, at that time, the, the chairman of the British equivalent of the Securities and Exchange Commission. These are not radical people. These are not weird people. These are people in the mainstream of economic thinking. And we all came together and said, ladies and gentlemen, you know, Houston, we have a problem. This is um, Washington or New York, whatever you want to call it. We have a problem. How do Let's I... Look- how do I approach? Am I am I going to get confused? Well, you don't know me, but I probably will. Uh, is your book something that the average reader can absorb and understand? Yes, I realize that a lot of this is very technical. So what I did right at the front, I created a summary. I know this is kind of normally you have a summary somewhere else. I, right at the front is a summary, and. All people need to do is read that summary, and they will get the gist of what this is all about. If then they're still there, well, maybe they want to switch to the conclusions. Okay, read the conclusions. If they're still there then, well, then they can read the rest of the book to show that what I put in the summary is actually what these people say. And they give all sorts of back. I don't, in the summary, the summary's short. I don't give the, all the statistics and all the back end, you know, et cetera. That's in the rest of the book. So if they get the book and read the, I don't know, 20 pages of summary, however long it is, they will totally understand what this is all about. I'll tell you one thing, it, it will change the way they look at money, banking, Federal Reserve Bank, and who they are in the system. How long did it take you, Uli, to get uh, this collaboration completed in the book into print? Uh, I'm afraid that uh, I time? can tell you it took me over a year. <laughs> That's not so long. It was, a... <laughs> it was a long, it was a lot more. As a matter of fact, I'm really glad I didn't know how, how, how much work it was going to be because I'm not at all convinced I would have gone for it. Uh, were there some challenges beside the fact of getting these very busy and productive people together and uh, getting it into print, or were there other things that also you had to overcome? And, uh, I had one of the top economists in the, in, the, in the United States say to me, Uli, you can't do this. You simply cannot do this. Hear me. Listen to me. 
and we did. You, you know, ignored him and together. did it anyway. Well, this is a fascinating idea, fascinating context. This book, again, almost 332 pages. If you were to introduce this to my listeners and get them, I guess, hooked on buying a copy of this, how would you do so? I would say that um, one of the analogies that I use is, is, is like we're all in a river. We're swimming in a river. And, and you know, you ask the average fish, they haven't got a clue they're in the water until you take them out of the water and then you realize it. We don't realize that it's the stream of that water that we're moving in. What is that water doing? What's the stream within, within which we live financially? And we all do. How does it work? How does it change my life and affect me in ways that I have no idea? That's what this is all about. If you want to be conscious of the financial river that you're swimming in, this is the book to get. And you also, uh, I'm sure, are concerned about the European monetary system and its possible collapse. There have been some banks that have gone under and some other things. Does that impact us as people of North America? Oh, very much, very much so, very much so. We are totally linked in the world. I go into that in the um, uh, in, in the conclusions. Also, try to draw it all together globally: uh, Japan, China, um, Europe. Very, very much so. Europe is, is is very unstable with what it is that they've put together, uh, and um, I mean, it's a political construct. And they've tried to use money as a mechanism to create a political construct, and it has not worked very well. So, we are in serious. Do do if they continue to go the way they do because we are so interconnected. I hear you, and I have those same concerns. Uh, I will study your book and try to get a handle on my finances, and I recommend this to my listeners. The title, The Next Money Crash, How to Avoid It, and our author, coordinator, Uli Korch, has joined me from Pennsylvania. Sir, where do we get copies of this book? Uh, all of the major publishers, uh, Amazon, Barnes & Noble, uh, there's, there's a whole bunch of that. You can get it pretty well anywhere. So. And uh, have you developed a website that people can go to for connections, or is that up and coming? Uh, no, there, there is a website. Uh, really, you know, you always need it. Real Money Econ, as in Real Money Economics, realmoneyecon.org, realmoneyecon.org. Uli, thank you for joining me today and for sharing your story about this fascinating book and the solutions that you have espoused. Thanks again for joining me. Thanks so much, Jay. For iUniverse, this is Jay Douglas Barker. iUniverse Radio is brought to you by iUniverse, the leading book marketing, editorial services, and supported self-publishing company. iUniverse Radio is produced by TogiNet Radio. Radio with a cutting edge.